We on? Good to go? Yes, we are. Hey, good morning, everybody. Sam Schreiner, you're one of the most dynamic scripture readers that, that I know. You're one of the most dynamic scripture readers. So, thank you. Thank you for blessing us. Oh, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Well, my goodness, isn't there a lot going on in our world right now? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. To think, like, four months ago, we were uh, probably doing a Pulse group after Summit 2, and then if you were really watching the news, there was some, like, background story about a flu in China or something. That was four months ago. Four months ago. I don't know about you, but it feels like a lot has gone on in the last four months. And it makes me wonder things like, you know, in this season of life, with the challenge that it is to remain focused on Jesus, right, amidst all the chaos and messages and feelings of uncertainty, makes you wonder why Jesus didn't just invent Facebook to begin with, that, that we could just follow him there. I mean, think about it. Just log on. Type in King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and then poof, there you go, connected. Like, imagine this. You could get supernaturally written updates on everything he does throughout the entire world at the tips of your fingers. You could watch Instagram and see pictures of every baptism happening in real time. You could check this out watch video of the world being created and look at the timestamp to settle that age-old debate? <laughs> Think about it, right? Like, like, why just didn't Jesus start with that? Think about this. You could even probably get ratings on, like, all the pastors that you podcast. Kind of like Rotten Tomatoes, how they rate, how fresh it is. Like you could rate how Holy Spirit-driven their sermons are, right? Well, that guy's only an 89. I'm feeling like I need an 85 today or 95 today. You could have a cross-reference list of wolves in sheep's clothing, right? You never have to be fooled. You could connect straight to the Lord through that. Imagine we could do virtual reality of a burning bush, like right here. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? The only, the only problem, all the banners and ads that would pop up on that page would be like too much to deal with. It would take like an hour to weed through that stuff to get to the page, right? Because every advertiser in the world would want to put their stuff there. There's one problem with that. It's not God's way. It's not God's way. In fact, my, my first point today is that our, our spiritual life is a very intimate process. Our spiritual life is a very intimate process. Jesus starts out with this verse, I am the vine, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, to put this in perspective, when Jesus starts to talk about the vine, we know throughout the Old Testament that Israel is actually referred to as the vine. So Jesus 
is not just making a metaphor about vines and wine and pruning and whatever. He's actually talking very specifically about Israel's national sense of pride, right? If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you'd want to be connected to the vine, but the problem is, if you read the Old Testament prophets, you'll know that when Israel's referred to as the vine, it's usually not a favorable thing. I'll read to you from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. It says, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bound bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is before me, declares the Lord. When Jesus starts off this point in Scripture saying, I am the true vine, what he's saying to those in the room is that this old vine, this covenant with Israel, has been that, an old and unhealthy vine. Jesus is declaring, I am the true vine. Now, it's interesting that theologians debate points like this, right? This is what makes them theologians is, when they're arguing things about, like, when did the new covenant actually start? Was it when Jesus was born? Was it when he was baptized and the dove descended on him? Was it when he died? When he was resurrected? Like, when did the new covenant, when was that moment? Okay, we're out of the old, we're into the new right now. And that's a, a debate we'll have to pick apart, and it's entirely on a different day, but it is interesting in this section of Scripture that this is the place where that doctrine of a new covenant goes from being just that, like a doctrine, to being that of an experience, right? Jesus is declaring, I am the spiritual connection that you need for life. I am the truth. He goes on in, branch two, in verse 2 to say, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, meaning God, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. Now, there's, there's people who use this point in Scripture to say, hey, the Bible teaches that you can lose your faith. You can lose your faith. Some people say that, right? Because it says right here, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit gets taken away. So you can be in Jesus and get taken away. Some people would make that argument. Here's the challenge with using metaphors, though, is if you try to make metaphors be more than they are, they, they break down at points. Like a metaphor is seldom, if ever, a perfect representation of every, march, every truth related to the subject that you're talking about. 
So I'll give you a couple of verses to, th- to say why I don't believe that that's what Jesus is saying. Revelation 20:12, where it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, and that was the book of life. And all the ju- dead who were judged by was what was written in those books according to what they had done. And we know that the book of life was written before the dawn of time. Roman, so, so it couldn't be that those people came and lost their faith. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, it said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that. John 10, 28 says, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So it doesn't seem like that's where Jesus is going with this verse. And quite frankly, if he was going to try to undo all the Scripture that kind of points the other direction, he glosses over it quite quickly. I don't believe what that's going for. What I do believe what he's talking about is how Israel is not bearing fruit, right? One of Israel's great theological mistakes was to misappropriate cultural success for spiritual fruit, to look at how God was blessing them as a picture of of His approval upon their lives. Now, it's true in Scripture, God makes promises to Israel. He says, do this, be obedient, and I will bless you. But there's also times in the Bible where God allows Israel, and I would say even us as New Testament believers, to experience blessings beyond what we've earned out of God's sense of patience with us. It's a mistake to look at God's material blessings as a measure of your intimacy with Him. One other mistake that Israel made was they substituted knowledge for intimacy. They substituted knowledge for intimacy. Now, I'm somebody who spent years in seminary, like I believe knowledge is a pathway to intimacy, good theology, good understanding of the Bible, good understanding of who Jesus is, is the way you're going to get to know Jesus. But just knowing those things in your head doesn't necessarily make you closer to Jesus. In fact, It's interesting to note, even in conversation, you can have conversation with somebody who knows a lot about the same topic you're talking about, but not connect with them whatsoever. See, there's a difference in the words and the roots behind the word dialogue and discussion, okay? Dialogue is like a relation of ideas one to another, whereas discussion is actually related to the root word percussion, right? You're just banging up against things. I don't know if you guys have had discussions like that, where it's like there's a lot of stuff that's being said, and it's just the words are just clanging against each other. In fact, someone recently said this to me. He said, it was a counselor person. He said, some people never have a real conversation in their whole life. You can know a lot of things. You can know a lot of things even about Jesus, 
but you still have to take the steps to be intimate with him. Verse 3 goes on. It says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, it's interesting that word clean and the word pruned are very similar words in, in Greek. In fact, Jesus might have been making a play on words. Those, those words sound a lot like each other. So to clarify kind of what he's saying, I would draw in the picture of how Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. One example, Jesus went to Peter and said, Peter, I need to wash your feet for you to be one in me. And Peter says, of course, no, Lord, I won't have you wash my feet. Washing feet was what servants did. Peter's saying, no, Lord, I I won't let you be a servant to me. I'm a servant to you. Jesus' reply to Peter is, unless I wash your feet, you won't be part of me. Peter replies, well then, Lord, by all means, the whole body, right? Head, hands, heart, everything. I need a bath. Jesus tells him, you're already clean because you've had a bath. I just need to wash your feet, right? Like you were wholly clean, but you're still getting stuff built up on part of you. And that's kind of the image that we're seeing here. Jesus telling them, hey, you've already been clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Interestingly enough, another contrast with the Old Testament belief, hey, you're clean because you follow the Ten Commandments. You're clean because you follow these rituals. Jesus is saying, no, you're clean because of what I've said to you. But he goes on and says, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we'll point out a couple interesting things about that word abide. How that word abide is used in this part of scripture. It's a past tense verb with no reference to completion. So what that means, it would be like, like if, if, if you were asking about somebody in a waiting room lobby of a doctor and you say, yeah, he's been waiting, right? He has already started waiting and he still continues to wait. He's not done, right? Same thing with the word abide. It would be like if I said, if, if my sister said to me, Where, you know, where's her daughter, where's my niece? And I said, she's outside playing with her ball. Means she started going outside and is still there. How Jesus is using this word for abide means something you need to start and be in continual process with. I'll tell you, I'll contrast that to a couple things that abiding isn't. Abiding isn't like a distracted, I'm doing something else and I'm kind of like abiding, right? Like if, like if I was talking to Bill while I was on my cell phone, I'm kind of talking to Bill, but I'm like kind of not also talking to Bill. I'm really not paying attention. Another thing that abiding it isn't, it isn't like a, a passive thing, right? It isn't like when we get home and we go, hey, Alexa, let's set us to abide, you know what, Alexa, it's been a real, real long day. How about we mix in some uh, abiding with some smooth jazz? <laughs> abiding is something that we actually have to sink our effort into. 
right? And this is a contrast with the Old Testament, right? I mean, it looks like on the surface that if you look at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, well, you could abide in those just sit in your closet all day. You're not going to steal anything. You're not going to murder anybody. You know, as long as you don't covet or think bad thoughts, as long as you're sitting in your closet all day, like you're good by the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus is saying, no, that's not, (laughs) you know, a greater discussion. That's not why we gave you the Ten Commandments, so that you would just withdraw from as much life as possible and think you're really spiritual. But he's also saying there's this thing about God that you need to understand that you're going to need to live into. That you're in some way not going to be able to grasp and control. You're just going to be having to hold on to. So your spiritual life in Christ, my second point, our spiritual life in Christ is an active process. It's an active process process. There's this call for us to be present with the Lord. Maybe a a synonym today, a a way we use a word in a similar way would be like when we say like, hey, I want to be with somebody, right? There's, There's reference to physical presence of being in the same room with somebody, but there's also a reference to an emotional sense of awareness and connection, To abide speaks of ultimate affection, that you won't abide in something for any duration of time unless your heart is in it, right? If you have a family member who's giving birth and you're waiting outside the hospital room to see that child for the first time when it enters the world, you're abiding, right? If you pull into a gas station and there's six cars ahead of you, You're probably not abiding, right? You're like, deuces, I'm out of (laughs) here. See, the example of abiding involves intimacy. It's more than a duty. It speaks of passion and purpose. And abiding has implication to it, that those who abide in love, that there will be a sense of care for you there. There will be a sense of help for you there. There will be a sense of that love for you there. Abiding speaks of those connections. Verse 6 goes on to say, If anyone not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a, quite a contrast in two little verses, right? One is a totally horrible outcome and one is like, complete spiritual empowerment. Think about that. You'll be thrown away like a branch that withers if you don't cling to me. It's interesting to note, this is the point in the story where Judas has just left the room. Think about that. Judas might have even had quite a nationalistic sense of faith. I mean, he was going to the temple talking to the priests, right? The pastors told him, like, hey, this guy is wrong. Don't follow him. The pastors even said, hey, we'll give you some money if you want to turn him in. See, Judas might have thought his his heritage was his salvation. In fact, if Jesus was on Facebook back then, he might have, you know, Judas might have been part of the Jewish nation Facebook page. 
He could have had all the external looks of being a good citizen. He'd even walked with Jesus for three years, but was far from him. You know, in thinking about some of the events that happened this week, like, I can, I can understand a little bit of, like, getting a nationalistic sense of identity. I mean, in, in thinking through my upbringing and growing up in a, you know, a relatively patriotic place, I mean, things, things like God and country, the star-spangled banner, um, standing for the American anthem, Shoot, I remember 4th of July, we used to go to these parades and watch all the city departments go by, throwing candy, waving sparklers, big red fire trucks spraying water, and the whole scene like doused in the smell of barbecue ready to come off the grill. Maybe even a summertime thunderstorm or like lightning bugs to go catch later, right? See, one of the interesting things, though, is, like, right now, things are changing. I mean, that, that picture of America I'm relating from my childhood isn't the picture of what I see on the news right now. In fact, some of those things that I've talked about are now, like, under quite a bit of criticism. Some of them. And all this, like, I know in my head that God creates nations and and changes them. America's going to change, like I know that in my head. And I know if God tarries long enough and this world lasts long enough, like America as a country will both rise and then one day no longer be what we experience America as a country today. I know all this in my head. In my heart, I'm not ready to, to talk about that. But wondering and, and, and looking through the events of these past few weeks and few months, I, I wonder if there's some sense of pruning coming to us. Like I, I, wonder, I wonder if these are like foreshots of, of changes that are happening and, and may even continue to happen. I'm not up here making some prophetic statement about the end of the country, the end of the world, surely not doing that. But it just makes me wonder in watching things that, change so quickly, like, are these changes going to be permanent? Are we looking at a new, new sense of normal? And to be quite frank with you, I have mixed feelings about a new sense of normal, right? Like, I, lo- I liked and even loved some of the past sense of normal, but, w- but I've actually been having to weigh that against my feelings for the Lord and His work. If there is a pruning coming, how much of that am I ready to lean into? How strongly do I really desire the Lord's things, even when they make my things uncomfortable? C.S. Lewis said this about us and our desires for temporal things. Or our, so he says about it, first this about our spiritual desires. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong for his spiritual things, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is 
offered by a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I'd say even for myself, there's times in temporal things I am far too easily pleased. And it makes me wonder, as values change, what's it going to look like when guests come here who may have a different set of values? I mean, what if they have a vastly different set of musical tastes? I can say this, almost whatever you think about the current set of politics and outcomes and things going on, no matter what side you sit on, there is a lot of people who disagree with you, right? <laughs> I mean, if, whether you're on the left, there's a lot of people who disagree with you. You're on the right, a lot of people disagree with you. You want to be a third party, there's still a lot of people who disagree with you. There is a lot of people who disagree with you and me. What is our purpose as a community and as a church? I mean, I'd say this, straight from Westminster Catechism, what is the chief aim and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy Him forever. If there's pruning in your life through COVID, changing your freedoms, through new political agendas and ideas coming our way, and God's asking you to give things up, He's not asking you to give things up and change just for the sake of changing. In fact, He goes on in verse 8 and says, by this, is, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That as the Father loves me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. My next point. It's for God's glory and our joy that we bear fruit. It's for God's glory and our joy that we bear fruit. Let me give you sort of a, a real-life picture of what this looks like. Has anybody here grown roses? Does anybody here grow roses? Okay, cool. Every year after the roses happen, the bush goes dormant. What do you do before the next springtime comes? What do you do? I see this. You prune them. You what? Yeah? Yeah? See? Yeah? You prune them. Why do you prune them? You get more blossoms, right? If that rose bush has 30 branches, you're going to have a ton of roses. They're all going to be this big. And you're going to be like, I'm not even, I don't even want to put that on my dinner table, right? Like, like they're so small, you can't hardly even appreciate them. How many branches do you cut it down to? About like what? Four to six, five to seven, somewhere in there, right? What happens when you cut that, when you hack that thing away and you leave like five or seven branches? What happens to those roses? They're big, Right? They're like softball size and rich. That's a very physical image of what God means when he talks about pruning us. 
I'll tell you what, this was true in my life when I was in seminary. I didn't have a lot of time for hobbies, right? Like that's like a, a full-time, got-your-attention kind of experience. It takes pruning to get through. I and mean, for some of you guys who went to college, Samuel just got through grad school. There's a pruning of the rest of your life that happens, right? But that kind of focused energy ultimately bears bigger fruit. See, part of being a Christian is being pruned. It's being pruned so that you can bear more fruit for God. See, God takes things away that don't have purpose in our growth and in our health. And even if you're in Jesus, you're going to experience some of that pruning. Right? Like, like there's both a picture of being connected to the vine. Right? Deeply, intimately connected to the vine. I would say for me, one of the verses that sums that up is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Those verses speak to the depth and the richness and the empowerment of being connected to the vine. But what Jesus is presenting here is there's a symbiotic relationship that while you're connected to the vine, there's the Father hovering through that garden full of vines doing some pruning. And that pruning often is significantly uncomfortable. For sure. There's an image here of being connected to that vine and yet the Father so painfully but fruitfully shearing our lives. My point in that is to bear fruit, you must be pruned. To bear fruit, you must be pruned. Max Lucado put it like this. He said, God, lo God loves us too much to indulge us in our every whim. See, Jesus here is leaving unspecific instructions, but a picture of what life is going to be like moving forward for the disciples, right? They're going to get a very significant sense of pruning as they're going to watch their leader die and be resurrected and get sent out into the world. Those experiences in that time would be significantly uncomfortable. And with that... He's also going to take away a lot of their sense of nationalism, their old comforts that they knew before. He's addressing their very heritage. In fact, in the next verse, right, because part of the heritage of Israel was when Moses went on the mountain and brought down stone tablets, right? God says, you're my people. Here's your instructions on how to live. That was part of their nationalistic heritage. Those laws were tied to them being set apart. In fact, in that day, there was what was called a suzerain treaty, which is how uh, rulers came to possess people. They would give them a set of rules and say, 
hey, you can be a part of my culture and a part of my nation, but here's the rules for entry. Some people look at the Ten Commandments as if they were that, a suzerain treaty for the nation of Israel to become part of God's people. So those commandments would be tied very deeply to their sense of self and their sense of identity. Jesus goes on and tells them what to do with that, those commandments. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Right? Track with this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Track with that. New commandment is someone who lays down their life for their friends. What's Jesus about to do? Lay down his life. What does he call them? His friends. Right? The Jews just heard Jesus say, hey, that old rotten vine is not it. I'm the vine. They're sitting there as all Jewish members, you know, of Jewish society now following Jesus, mind-blown. What do we do then? Jesus says, love one another. Love one another. So what does that mean about the Ten Commandments? What do we do with them? Are they just like chaff to be thrown away? I'd invoke David's words here from Psalm 119 where he says, in verse one, starting in verse 100, I understand more than the aged, David said, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to taste sweeter than honey in my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. See, I'd say it's an overstep for us to want to just discard the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament like they're chaff. They were more like an introductory chapter, but a big part of the story. The problem with leaving the Old Testament and not having the New Covenant is, quite frankly, the Jews really didn't know what to do with the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, because the Ten Commandments weren't hard enough, some of the Jewish scholars went through the Torah and took out every command God gave them, and some numbered up to 613 commandments. Some numbered more, some numbered less, because here's the thing. When God would say, hey, do this and this and this and that, if there was three things in the sentence to do, they argued about, well, was that one new commandment or three? How do we number these things, right? As if any of them had the Ten Commandments nailed, right? Like, I got these ten, like I need 503, 603 more, right? They really just didn't know what to do with that. So Jesus, Jesus is trying to simplify it for us. Praise God. Ten's hard enough, 613, like I'm not going to make it through that. He says, love one another. Love one another. 
He changed the game to be one of like passive obedience to be one of love and friendship and sacrifice and significance. He goes on to say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go bear fruit and that fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you so that you love one another. The New Testament expounds on that idea in Galatians 5, through 26. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. See, if, we're, if we all live our life like that, we don't need 600 separate commandments. Love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What a good picture for us today in terms of how we lead into, invest into, and engage in our culture. One of the most unfortunate things I see about our world events is that they're so heated and conflicted that I feel like those heavy conflicts are pushing back God's gospel from invading the public space. Sometimes as Christians, when we don't want to say the wrong thing or we're scared of being attacked, we can wait to speak. That's a good thing. But if we're all just waiting to speak and the entirety of the secular world consumes our media spaces, our public spheres, and everything else, kind of by default, the weeds are choking out the fruit of the gospel. Yet, we know throughout history that it's in times of social upheaval that God almost more efficaciously calls people to himself. I don't know if you know this, but when COVID started to break in our country initially, Bible sales spiked aggressively. People started buying the Bible and reading it, looking for context in their life amidst the confusion. And I feel like the only people on earth who can give like really accurate context to what's going on are those who have read and invested in this book. So what does all that mean for us? All over the world, culture's changing quickly. And as much as I enjoy our culture, have been blessed by our culture, love our culture, would like to see it persevere in ways that I enjoy, I recognize that's not my, my primary concern. My, my primary concern during times like these is that the gospel would go out to people, that people would hear God's message of truth and redemption, that they would understand there's a bigger purpose to their life, 
that they would be changed and transformed by God's Word. As Christians, a couple things that we can do is, is be prayerful. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Amen. Amen. So, so what if? What if the next 15 years look way different than we expected? What if they look way different than the last 15 years or, or my personal professional goals being accomplished or your sense of retirement being accomplished? What if it looks different than that? What if some of the sense of comfort you'd hoped for and worked for and labored for like turned out looking different? That instead of maybe the, the easy road in life, it, it was a fruitful but effort-filled labor of stretch and sacrifice to see God's Word go out and His purposes accomplished. One of the things that we can do this week is pray. Pray for our country. Pray for our world. Does the Lord want to move our community into a deeper place of reliance on Him? Does the Lord want to move for, for some in this country who perceive Sunday as the hour or two where they're in church? Does the Lord want to call them deeper through trials, through challenges, through uncertainty? I pray that we would be open to His work even if that's where He wants to take us. I can say this, I've had like years of my life where I've been relatively unintrospective about racial stuff in this country. I've had year, like periods of time where it's not even really crossed my mind in, in significant ways. But my guess, if I was going to make a guess about something going forward, is the racial question is going to be more complicated before it becomes more simple again. My thought about those seasons of being unintrospective about those things is those seasons might be over at least for a while. That there may be new lenses employed in how people judge us and judge our community. And then it may be time to start thinking about how to be good, joyful, peaceful, forbearing, kind to others and still talk about sin as sin. If change is indeed coming, I would encourage you to be prayerfully ready to embrace it. Watch the news. See what people are saying and how their perspectives differ from yours. But most of all, don't go far from this, right? Jesus talks about himself as the Word incarnate. And he's left this for us to understand the world. So as I close in us, with us, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Change is coming, but if it comes, God's going to work in that. God's going to move in that. And he's going to have a harvest, a fruitful harvest in that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for giving us the freedom to gather and lift up your word, to encourage one another in faith. 
Lord, I ask that you'd give us an outpouring of your divine wisdom, Lord, that in these confusing times we'd be able to see, see you clearly, that we'd be able to intimately hold on to you, Lord. Lord, that we would be able to see you work in our day and feel empowered through that process. God, I ask for your protection over our minds and our hearts and our bodies as we leave. Please keep us safe from COVID. Help our minds to be open to understand what's going on in the world and divinely guide us to how we can be fruitful for you. In your precious and your holy name, Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.